Welcome to CEF Insights, your source for closed-end fund information and education, brought to you by the Closed-End Fund Association. Today we are joined by Bill Housey, Managing Director of Fixed Income with First Trust, as well as Portfolio Manager of First Trust Senior Floating Rate Income Fund 2, ticker FCT, and First Trust High Yield Opportunities 2027 Term Fund, ticker FTHY. Bill, we are happy to have you with us today. Diane, thank you. It's great to be with you. Bill, the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, inflation has been running high, and if that continues, it may force the Fed to be more aggressive. We also have significant geopolitical tensions that have added to volatility. Where do you see the credit markets currently, and what is your outlook for the rest of 2022 and into 2023? Sure, Diane. That's a terrific way to start the conversation. You know, as I look at credit markets today, and and I'll just focus specifically on below investment grade credit. You know, this has been the toughest start to the year for the bond market in history. If we look across all the indices, actually, whether safe fixed income or risky fixed income, all of these markets have faced real challenges this year as interest rates have reset higher aggressively. As I look at the high yield market through the end of the second quarter, it's down about 14% on a year. The senior floating rate bank loan market down about 4.5%, which has proven to be a lot more resilient. But you know, in terms of where we are today, you know, these markets have all really suffered together in the wake of much higher interest rates and much more concern about growth in the overall economy. But as we think about outlook, I've had a theme that I've carried with me throughout the year. And I've really thought about this as the year of reentry. And that theme is pretty simple. If you know anything about space travel at all, Diane, you know that getting a rocket out of the Earth's atmosphere is actually the easy part. It's bringing it back that's really complex. And we can blast a rocket out of the atmosphere by just putting big rockets on there and shooting it out. But bringing it back, if, it, if that spacecraft comes in too flat, it bounces off the atmosphere like a stone on a lake. And if it comes in too steep, it can implode under the incredible G-force that's created. And all the while, these spacecraft are exposed to temperatures of 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is roughly 1,000 degrees hotter than lava. And I'm always amazed that we actually engineer and manufacture things like that. So in terms of the parallel with financial markets, I really think it's quite simple. We created some $2 trillion economic hole when we shut down the U.S. economy in 2020, but we plugged it with some $5 trillion. We put roughly a trillion dollars into people's checking accounts, and that gave us liftoff. That was what blastoff was last year. This year is is all about that reentry, and it's about sucking that liquidity back out of the market because the Fed waited too long to address this inflation problem. And by waiting too long, they now have a backdrop of slowing economic growth as we go through this reentry, if you will, And they're now sucking liquidity out of the market by using quantitative tightening and driving interest rates up at a very aggressive clip. And so that creates tremendous volatility. And so as I look forward, my expectation is that we have that continuation of volatility. We're in a bear market for equities, and those bear markets take some time to be resolved. And I think the most likely outcome is that we continue down this path of heightened volatility until it's resolved either with lower inflation or the Fed eventually pivots. And that's really what we need. We need the Fed to take its foot off the accelerator. And when it does, I think that will help solidify a bottom. But otherwise, I just think it's more the same, at least as we push through the rest of this year. Into 2023, I think there's a greater probability of a recession. 
And that's simply a result of what the Fed's behavior function has been. Driving those rates higher pulls the tail of the business cycle forward, in my view. And as a result, again, it all centers on what it will take for the Fed to pivot and actually reduce rates and take some pressure off. And that will allow some of these markets to recover. And I think that's really where most eyes are centered today. What challenges does this present to income-oriented investors or investors seeking portfolio diversification from traditional fixed-income investments? Well, you know, it's, it's really interesting, Diane, because traditionally, typically, fixed income is a great stability ballast alongside someone's equity portfolio. So that fixed income has proven to be very beneficial over time. Well, this year, it's one of those challenges where you've had the equity market down, but you've also had safe fixed income down. So the big challenge this year is really simple. It's that safe fixed income hasn't done its job. It hasn't been safe at all. The ag is down about 10% through the end of the second quarter. Um, The investment grade corporate bond index down about 14%. Mortgage-backed securities down about 9%. And of course, the S&P off almost 20% by the end of the second quarter. So you get the idea here that safe fixed income really didn't do its job. That's been the big challenge. Now, one of the big questions we often get is this idea that a 60-40 portfolio, you know, is it dead? Is, Is that concept dead? And the way I've always thought about that was when interest rates were as low as they were, and rate risk was as high as it was, certainly coming into the year, my view is not that it's dead. The idea of 60-40 isn't dead. It's simply hibernating, right? It's in hibernation. It's it's taking a long nap and allowing these rates to reset higher, allowing income and duration risk within the bond market to become more balanced. And as it does, I believe that that provides us the opportunity on a forward basis to feather back out that duration risk, to work our way back towards a 60-40 portfolio that can then protect investors, that will allow those bonds to do their job again in protecting investors against volatility. So I think the biggest challenge, just very clearly, is that bonds haven't done their job this year in protecting investors. But I do believe we're working our way back towards an, an environment where that can be possible. And certainly as rates fall, I would personally anticipate these bond prices to lift again. And you would expect that to occur in bouts of significant volatility. So I think we're we're working our way back towards that. Bill, we mentioned two closed-end funds you manage, FCT and FTHY, which focus on senior loans and high-yield bonds respectively. How would you expect these asset classes to perform in an environment of rising rates? Sure. Well, in, in an environment of rising rates, we typically look at the senior floating rate bank loan asset class as being incredibly resilient. And it has been resilient in large part this year relative to other asset classes, because the floating rate, as interest rates reset higher, that floating rate provides tremendous benefit to investors. The challenge becomes when it goes from a floating rate environment, rising rate environment, if you will, to a growth scare. And we've had a bit of both of those environments this year. So I think in a traditional rising rate environment where rates are steadily climbing over time, senior floating rate bank loans do a tremendous job and typically are one of the best performing asset classes when you're in that rising rate environment. High yield bonds typically as well can offer some protection in those rising rate environments because they have a large yield typically and a large spread that can offer some shock absorption. Now, coming into this year, yields were very low within high yield and spreads were also very tight. So the typical protections in the high yield market simply weren't there. And we saw that really manifest itself 
and that's why high yield was down some 12.5% through the end of the second quarter, because high yield really didn't have the typical protections in place. So ordinarily in a rising rate environment, you'd expect senior loans to benefit from that higher floating rate. You'd expect high yield to have some yield and spread protection afforded to them, which allows those bonds to outperform typically in that environment. I would say that this has just been a really challenging market generally, given that you didn't have those protections in place. But as we look at the market today, certainly there's a lot more protection in the high-yield bond market because yields are much higher. Spreads have improved dramatically as bond prices have sold off. And I really think the challenge for these markets today is going to reside around that idea of a potential recession in 2023. So the question of whether the Fed can land a soft landing as they work to raise interest rates to stave off this strong inflation that we've seen. And I think that there's a very low probability that the Fed will be successful in that. And so that means that we remain in this period of greater volatility. The benefit today, however, is that as we look at something like the senior loan or high yield bond market, yields are much better. So in the high yield bond market, when yields approach 9%, I mean, that's a 9% shock absorber or buffer against loss when you think about purchasing that asset class today. So, you know, that's quite a bit different than where we entered the year when yields were below 5%. And I think the senior loan market at some 7.5% in terms of yields, you know, again, those buffers continue to grow against loss. So to lose money, you have got to wipe out that income uh, over the course of the year. And so the higher those yields become, the more challenging that is to wipe out those income levels. So I think it provides some buffer on a forward basis given where yields and spreads have become. And so I think that's an important consideration. How do you see active management and these type of investments contributing to addressing the challenges this market environment presents? Active management is really paramount when it comes to fixed income because active management is really about risk management. And in a typical benchmark for the fixed income universe, there is no risk management. So you typically have benchmarks that are created simply based on the weights of the underlying constituents. So if I look at a corporate credit index, the weights in that index would simply be representative of the biggest companies that have issued debt. So the more debt they issue, the bigger the weighting in the given index, or the more debt an industry takes on as a whole, the greater that industry weight becomes. If we think about even the the ag index, which is our safe fixed income proxy, where you have mortgage-backed securities, U.S. treasuries, investment-grade corporates, those weightings are simply a function of where the debt is issued. So the more debt that's issued in the treasury market, the bigger the treasury component of that index, for example. So those variables that simply looking at the weights in the index, those tell you that there is no risk management there. The weights are simply representative of where the debt issuance is. And so we think that understanding where you're positioned on the yield curve, understanding how much credit risk you're taking in a given portfolio, these are paramount to driving long-term, strong, risk-adjusted returns and really smoothing the ride. So we believe the key to success in the bond market is absolutely about risk management because that's what active management is. And we believe that over time, this has been proven that active management can actually win within the bond market, whereas clearly it's a different case than the equity market, or it certainly has been for for many, many years. So in fixed income, I think it is a bit unique because risk management is how you win the game in fixed income. 
What is your process to evaluate your investment universe to develop a workable set of potential investments? Sure. So we always start with the broad index. We think about that broad index as our potential sandbox, if you will. And we think about our risk budget through the lens of that broad index. So what we do is we start with that broad index and we say, this is our universe to look at. And we immediately start, we begin by kicking out the cyclical industries. We think that lending money to highly cyclical companies through time has proven to deliver bad outcomes. And so if you think about sectors like chemicals and automotive and energy, these businesses that have high variability or a high standard deviation around their operating performance, they don't make good businesses to lend against typically because what ends up happening is the operating performance suffers dramatically into business cycle slowdowns and what you're lending against changes very dramatically. So what we begin with after we've kicked those sectors out in large part is a very heightened focus on defensive or acyclical industries. And what types of industries might those be? Industries like healthcare, technology, software companies with contracted customers, insurance companies. We tend to focus on insurance brokers, companies that under that they don't take the underwriting insurance risk, but they manage the client relationships. Insurance tends to be a very sticky business. Cable companies, if you think about people who subscribe to cable television and more importantly, broadband services, those tend to be very stable through time. And what we're looking for there are stable cash flows, stable valuations, industries that will remain relatively stable through an economic cycle. So we start there. That's our primary starting point, if you will, in terms of assessing what the universe will look like and developing that workable set of investments. How do you then make specific security selections and allocate those positions as you build your portfolio? Well, it's a really good question, Diane. We have a team of 17 investment professionals. The average experience on this team is about 18 years. The senior members have about 26 years of experience. And so what we do with that team is we research and model hundreds of companies. We take some 2,000 earnings calls every year. We probably do 100 to 150 management team calls and meetings every year. And it's through that research and our focus on companies that can deliver strong, steady, stable cash flow through an economic cycle and that have valuations that are solid and relatively stable through an economic cycle and are run by strong management teams that we can identify the companies that we think fit that model best. And so it's through that process that we then rate those companies internally. We have a proprietary rating system that we utilize to determine how much of a given name that we want to hold based on our assessment of the company's credit risk. And of course, we consider things like relative valuation. How well are we paid for a given level of risk in that specific company? And all those variables require an immense amount of effort and time to help deliver what we believe to be a, a really solid output in terms of risk management and delivering that steady return profile that we're trying to deliver through time. What are the key factors or events that would lead you to sell a particular portfolio security or significantly change your portfolio allocation? You know, every investment we make starts with an investment premise, and that's really rooted in our expectations. And so what we do is 
we set our rating and our expectations up front. And then as we continue to monitor and assess that company through its earnings reports, through ongoing conversations with management, for example, we continue to test our premise on an ongoing basis. And if our premise is broken or challenged, it's at that point that we have an inflection point where we say something is different, something doesn't match with our initial premise because we're continuously coming back to that initial premise and challenging ourselves to look at that premise and say, has something changed? Is it improving? Is it meeting our expectations? Or has it deviated? And if it deviates, if it doesn't meet our premise, we utilize that inflection point to identify the sale candidate at that point. And being nimble, having small position sizes as part of our process is really important because that allows us the latitude to not be forced to hold something that we want that we want to exit. So we think it's very important to maintain relatively small position sizes on average of something like 50 basis points or less so that we can be nimble and navigate through time when something isn't meeting our expectations. So it's about looking at the expectation up front, reassessing that expectation on an ongoing basis relative to what we're seeing and challenging that view up every single time we look at the company to determine whether or not it's meeting our objectives. How is the current portfolio for each of FCT and FTHY positioned? In the current market environment, are there areas where you are finding attractive valuations or opportunities? There absolutely are areas in the market where we found uh, certainly much better valuations into the wake of the market volatility that we've seen. And just like I talked about in terms of our focus, what you would see from us is just a very consistent discipline in how we allocate the portfolio. So starting with FCT, for example, if you looked at our largest industries, you would find software with those relatively sticky customers as the largest industry. And then it's healthcare providers and services, followed by insurance brokerage and healthcare technology. And so it's really about looking at those industries that we believe are more defensive and acyclical in nature and really leaning into those industries, especially given our expectations for continued volatility in the market. And I think if you look at overall yields, as I mentioned in the market, that we're at the senior loan market, the average yield is about 7.5%. Um, and, and you look at the average dollar price of senior loans at around 91 or 92 cents on the dollar, we certainly are finding better values. And our focus has been on certainly looking at shorter maturities in the loan market, things that we think will have a high probability of generating a high IRR with a pullback to par, because that's really an important nuance, whether it's a senior loan that we look at or a high-yield bond that we look at. The distinction between what we're doing every day and the volatility in the equity market is that we have a maturity, and that maturity can be a real ballast over time. When stocks sell off, Everybody waits for some good reason, whether it's earnings or, or valuation or multiple expansion for those stocks to come back up. But there's certainly no guarantee that they will anytime soon, at least with a piece of debt. What I can tell you is that debt is either going to repay or it's going to default. And you know what? It turns out they don't all default. Even in the global financial crisis, you had a 10 or 12 percent peak default rate. And so what we typically see is that once the smoke clears and the dust settles and the focus shifts back to fundamentals and valuations, these assets can pull back to par because that maturity is a strong ballast and allows these companies to come back to the market, have to refinance debt. And if they're fundamentally performing, they'll have the ability to do that. 
In the case of FTHY, our high yield strategy is very similar to that of FCT. You see our top industries, number one is cable companies, followed by software, followed by healthcare providers, followed by insurance. So again, those defensive acyclical industries and a real focus on companies where we think there's a high probability of success, meaning focusing especially into this wake of the sell-off on those higher quality companies where the bonds have sold off pretty dramatically just because rates have reset higher on the expectation that fundamentals won't break down in these acyclical companies in any way like they will in the cyclical industries. And that will be a ballast to this overall portfolio. And through time, we would anticipate that those bond prices can pull back to par. And we think that's very important. So it's just that focus, that consistent discipline across all of our strategies and looking for those opportunities. Bill, how would you see a senior loan or high-yield strategy best positioned in an income-oriented investor's portfolio? You know, it's really a good question. If you look at senior loans and high-yield bonds, they're more correlated with equities than they are with traditional safe bonds. And so that's really important. You know, these are risk asset classes. If you think about a typical portfolio or bond portfolio, there's core fixed income, which is your safe fixed income, although it hasn't proven to be very safe this year. Things like your investment grade corporates, your treasuries, and your mortgage-backed securities. And then you've got your plus or your spread product. And that's where senior loans and high-yield bonds fit. So what I've typically advised clients is that when you think about these asset classes, make sure to put them in the appropriate bucket, right? These aren't safe fixed income, right? When they're correlated with equities, you should have an anticipation that they'll move directionally with equities. Now, senior loans have less risk than equities. That's empirical. They have a lower standard deviation than equities. And in fact, equities are below the debt and the capital structure. So that makes intuitive sense. High-yield bonds sit above the equity and the capital structure. So high-yield bonds have a lower standard deviation, less volatility than equity. So what I've said is, for clients looking to um, take risk out of their equity portfolio, for example, they can move up the capital structure into these asset classes, right? As long as you think about it in the appropriate context, these belong in the equity side of the portfolio. But many clients have dividend-paying equity strategies. Well, when you have asset classes like senior loans and high-yield bonds at some 75 to roughly 9% yields, as far as the indices are concerned, well, you know, boy, that starts to look really attractive in an equity portfolio. And if they can deliver less volatility than equities, but you put them in that equity portfolio, well, you're not stepping entirely out of the risk game by going to cash or something like that. And you have the potential to at least you know, stay into in that risk spectrum, but without taking as much risk. So as I look at these asset classes today, I think they're well suited to be part of that equity allocation. And I would continue to keep them separate from what a traditional safe fixed income investment should be, where you're not taking that credit risk, for example. And that's how I think about those asset classes today. I think they're really well suited given those high coupons, and especially on an actively managed basis where you can avoid the heavy cyclical exposure, attempt to mitigate that risk that is inside the index to the extent possible to help smooth the ride. I think that's really, really important. And I think that's what these asset classes can deliver. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And my pleasure. Thank you. And we want to thank you for tuning in to another CEF Insights podcast. For more educational content, please visit our website at www.cefa.com. 
This material is not and is not intended as investment advice, an indication of trading intent or holdings, or the prediction of investment performance. All fund-specific information is the latest publicly available information. All other information is current as at the date of this presentation. All opinions and forward-looking statements are subject to change at any time. First Trust disclaims any responsibility to update such views and or information. This information is deemed to be from reliable sources. However, First Trust does not warrant its completeness or accuracy. This presentation is not intended to and does not constitute an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security, product, investment advice or service, nor shall any security, product, investment advice or service be offered or sold in any jurisdiction in which First Trust is not licensed to conduct business and or an offer, solicitation, purchase or sale would be unavailable or unlawful.